Today I'm joined by John Savage, who is uh, an estate agent from Marlow in Buckinghamshire, and also a podcast of Zero BS Estate Agency. Uh, he's worked in the industry for many years. He's an ex-para and ex-actor as well. And we're here to talk about his trials and tribulations, his story, his journey of estate agency. So let's dive in. And firstly, John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. Good stuff. Right, okay. So, what year were you born, my friend? 77. 77. You always had a tough paper out. <laughs> Fully yellow. <laughs> When you were growing up, uh, were you in a, were you, did you have any brothers and sisters? Uh, a younger sister. Good stuff, good stuff. So mum and dad, what, what sort of line of work were they in? So mum actually works for the BBC. Still does? Um, no, she, don't. she took early retirement, but she was actually quite senior within the BBC. Um, uh, contracts, worldwide contracts. And my dad was a chef. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, when you were growing up, did you know what you wanted to do? No, I didn't actually. Well, that being said, I always, well, to be fair, I used to have my little action man on the parachute and he'd be just throwing him off the balcony and the block of flats. Oh, can you remember them? You love those. <laughs> exactly. And it's just, it'd flow, go down, I'd run down, I'd grab it, I'd wrap it all up, off again as well. So there was an element of me always watching the black and white movies about World War One, World War II, um, looking at like paratroopers jumping out the planes. I didn't ever think I was going to be a paratrooper, but certainly I would thought, I want to join the military. That's one of the things I always wanted to do. As you were growing up, what did your father teach you? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Right. Why is that? How did that come about? So we grew up on a ex or well, a local authority council estate. My dad come from deepest, darkest North London, where everybody had to be tough and getting your elbows out. So in terms of like his love, mum's love was get the nice cuddles. How are you, son? Dad's love was get up go again, get up, go again. And it, I believe to, when you come into the big wide world, is like stand up on your own two feet. And if you do get knocked down, that's fine. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, you go again. So very much. Um, uh, How did he teach that as a five, six, seven year old? Uh, well, playing football, not with him, but playing football with others in the football team and so on and so forth and getting absolutely smashed, for example, in a tackle, I could cry my eyes out. My collarbone could have gone deep into a rut my dad's like, son, you're right. Yes, right. Get up. Bigger they are, the harder they fall. So, so if ever I fell down, there was always that lesson. If ever I didn't do homework, for example, I'm not doing your own work for you, boy. You either do it, or you go and tell, you go and explain to the teacher why you haven't done it. So that anxiety leading up to go and see the teacher because I haven't done it, essentially was trying saying to me, you need to take responsibility. It's interesting that uh, you posted recently that um, you felt like you were, you know, you weren't going to make the para training course, you know, the the, mm. the admission course. Did did you think you got through that because of your father? Yeah, oh yeah, 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 definitely. So um, before I joined, when I told everybody I was going to join not just the military, but I was going to be trying for the parachute regiment. Uh, was it the Paris because you were throwing that little toy with the... It was, yeah. But, it, but, it, but at the same time, though, um, I was asked the question, do you want to go for something that's absolutely hideous and attempt to something very few people are able to get in? Or do you want to go to the... Which is professional, but the rest of the British, British military. I chose 
I mean, you were, we're going to come on and talk about you. You 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 went to acting college school, mm. um, and you nearly got a famous role, which we'll come on to in a second, and we'll come on to why you particularly joined the the the, the Paris, but or the military. But when you did that, did you? Was it a case of I want to be a, I want to be a para or I just want to join the army? No, like, I wanted to be a para. Yeah. So you walked into the army recruiting office and said I want to be a para. And lucky for me, uh, Sergeant Behan, his name, was sitting there in the who was in the parachute regiment. So that made it an easy thing. So I would, no one tried to talk me out of it. And no, 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 don't join that. Come and join my. You're not a big lad, are you? No, uh, 145 pounds, five foot seven. Um, but you'd be surprised. A lot of the parachute regiment lads, a lot of them are my size. There, and there's some units. There's some big, big lads, but a lot aren't. When you jump out of an aircraft the parachute will only take 350 pounds. So if you weigh in and say 100, 108 kilograms, for example, or 96 kilograms, you're already taking up a lot of weight. That weight then has to get distributed to the smaller lads. So the smaller lads end up carrying more when you exit an aircraft, um, which is horrific, because you could use 180 odd, 200 pounds on your back, <laughs> trying to stand up in a plane, and then trying to exit that plane is really hard. So I'll be all right because uh, I haven't got to carry anything. No, no, no. You should carry your shoot, yeah. And then I'll take your gear. Um, yeah, that's right. Thanks, Chris. What was it like, you know, going through that? But, you know, you, you mentioned it on social media. What was it like going through the selection process? It, was it, it powers or nothing? It was powers or nothing, yeah. So basically, you get three attempts. Uh, you fail the third time, that's it. You get launched out the regiment training establishment and then you will be going to a different unit. Um, to give you an idea, only around 17% on average from day one, week one to the end of basic training actually make it into the parachute regiment. So for every 100 at the start, only around 17 will actually make it through. Um, and that could be a number of different things. You could have somebody who have the right mindset. Do you have to go through basic training and then go to Paris then or just straight, no, to... straight into parachute regiment depot? Yeah. Um, and it was for me the most hideous thing. I was at the back of every run the back of every, definitely the back of every force march were carrying weight. Um, and it was a shock to the system. Interestingly, family members, friends, so on and so forth, all said, you're not gonna make it. You're too small. You won't be, you won't be able to cope. You won't, you can't be told. Or the only person who didn't say it was my dad, which was interesting. And what did he say? Crack on, do it, and show everybody exactly what you're capable of. Which of course, the pressure now, when you're on a force march or you're on exercise and it is horrific and you're thinking all I want is a shower and I am so close to giving up and then you've got that in the back of the mind. Has that helped you in your state agency career? Yeah. Yeah, completely. So what do you tell yourself when you think you're about to give up? You're only at 40%. Because we're going to talk about these in some separate videos. Yeah. You're only, you're, only, you're only at 40%. There's loads of times where I don't want to edit that podcast. I don't want to do that TikTok video. I don't want to make that phone call that's hideous, but it doesn't matter. Make it, get it done. You know, so it's um, the, from, the, from that training, and that's what I try to say with people, I run my own little fitness group. And in that, it's just like, you may think 100 burpees is tough. It's not. Get them done. You know, and when they get it done and they're like, wow, I've just completed 100 burpees. Exactly. How cool is that? right, we're going to do 150 next, you know, so it's, um, it, it's, it's the parachute regiment definitely has taught me where other people think something's impossible. 
we're going to teach what they think is impossible a lesson. Anyone watching this, what can they learn? What can they do to, you're not going to change from just watching one video. Well, some might, mm. but what advice would you give to someone? Uh, to, to change uh, just the mindset. A, the mindset. Not uh, to give up. Literally, whatever you, whatever you think is impossible, go and do it. Go and do that and teach yourself a lesson that actually, no, 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 you are good enough. You are capable enough to go and do whatever that is. And it doesn't matter. So, for example, I joined one group and everyone was like, what, 100 burpees a day every day for 30 days. In my head, I wasn't thinking, my good God, that's 3,000 burpees in a month, 100 every day. Who wants to do 100 burpees every day? I was thinking, I'm going to finish first. I, my time is going to be the least amount of time for 100 burpees. I wasn't thinking, you know, so, it's a, so again, that, that mindset thing, because I'd been there before, I wasn't thinking this is going to be hard and horrible. I was thinking, I'm going to smash everyone. Um, okay, let's yeah. come back to that. Mm. Um, what did your mum teach you as you were growing up? Uh, empathy and compassion. Okay. Spirituality. Always be nice. It doesn't matter who somebody is. Everyone's equal. Sounds like a good combination. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, the, the issue is now my mum and dad live in New Zealand, right? Um, so my dad hardly talks. Love him to bits. But when my mum calls, I'm like, I'm going to be on a call here for about three, four hours. I know I am because we would talk about everything and nothing, you know, and it would like put the world to rights one moment. And the next moment we're talking about what she's up to or what I'm currently doing. And it's lovely. It's wonderful. We used to sit there as a youngster and we used to look at the stars out the window and just sit there looking at the stars and wondering what they are, what the purpose is. And that, you know, um, they really sound like opposites. They are, they are opposites, but it's, um, my mum is phenomenal for my dad in the sense that she has been able, my dad's quite a depressive character. My mum is the opposite of that. My mum's actually an actor as well now. She's always on stage. So she brings that life, uh, happiness, um, raising my dad up to a point where my dad's able to lean in on her. But then of course his masculine energy, she's able to rely and leaning on as well. So as you, let's get back to when you were growing up, apart from throwing, um, throwing uh, parachutes off uh, plastic figures, which I had one, they were wonderful. Um, what, what did you want to be when you became a teenager? We mentioned acting before. Was, it, was, was, was your mum an actor at the time? I know she said she worked for the BBC, but was, yeah. she, in, was she in acting as well? Or? No, no, no. So how all that came about, um, uh, and I really enjoyed acting at the time, I'd done like 36 commercials. I'd done loads of TV work, like The Bill, for example. Um, How old were you at this point? So I started when I was nine and then um, school, stage school finished at 16. And at that time I had I'd done like the 36 commercials, a Sugar Puffs commercial, a BT commercial, um, loads of theater, loads of stage. I did all of that. The only thing I'm not particularly proud of, Chris, is um, wearing ballet tights and ballet shoes. Whatever lights you can Coming from a council estate, that was one thing I needed to keep. Well, you weren't Billy Elliot, were you? No, 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 <laughs> definitely not. That, I just keep that really low for the sake of being... No one watches this, don't worry. Yeah, so it'll be fine. Okay. Um, and I think, if memory serves you well, you said before we switched the cameras on, you um, were in the running for a very famous role, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was actually uh, penciled in to play Frodo in Lord of the Rings. And that would have been 18 months in New Zealand. Um, but... At the final hurdle, Elijah Wood, I think that's his name. Um, he basically, Peter Jackson gave him the part. He had been in a number of other different films. He was bringing a much bigger audience than what I was bringing. 
um, uh, which was zero. Uh, so yeah, I didn't actually get that part, but that would have been wicked. But I always wanted to join the military. Do you think that was the catalyst for you to say, "Else, oh, I it. I'm giving up on." Did you give up? Yeah, did... no, no, that's right. I did because I had at the time I had a main part in Grange Hill. So um, like 20 episodes, did 18 episodes and it was good, but I was, I was, I had fallen out of love with it. And at the time, so How when I was you at this time, uh, I was 21 okay. at this time. And I only had up until the age of 23. If I didn't join the military before the age of 23, I never could. And I always wanted to experience war and that's so it's a, yeah, war? exactly. Right. So it's one of those things. It's like, I wanted just to see what war was like going up a, and this is going to sound morbid, but jumping in trenches with another soldier with bayonets, etc. And it's, yeah. That's weird. That is proper weird. Um, but it was more around, I don't know, seeing all the shows, seeing all the documentaries growing up, the black and white films of World War One, the Second World War, other wars, the film Zulu. It was all of those things. I was thinking, wow, I wonder what it would really be like actually to go to war. By the way, um, I've been to war. Um, luckily, I've never fired around in anger, but I've seen bombs and bullets. Um, seen young kids that look like they're fast asleep and they're not, they are actually dead. And it's that, that element is, um, yeah, that's pretty bad seeing that. And actually, when I got back from Iraq, I was, I'm quite a spiritual person at heart, but I was a very angry man when I got back from Iraq. I couldn't reconcile everything that we had seen. The last, the last thing that happened, lucky for me, I actually fractured both my legs about a month before a contact. But six Royal Military Police um, were murdered in a place called Almajar, which is Almajar Al-Kabir, where we were stagging on. Um, two days before this incident, the Iraqis told us they were going to get our throats were going to be cut. So as a show of force, we went back. Um, I wasn't there. I refused to go because I knew something bad was going to happen. My intuition was screaming at me. And I went to get my legs x-rayed and they said, yeah, you fractured both your legs. So um, how did you fracture your legs? I fell off a ladder off the back of a patrol coming down the ladder. One foot went through a rung. I went over the top and like fracture, fracture. But no one believed me, Chris. They was like, get up, savage. Stop being weak. Um, so I was still going out on all the patrols. It was just that that moment was like, mm. Raw military police actually went. They didn't tell no one, unfortunately, that they were going to be there. We didn't know. Well, my platoon didn't know that they were going to be there. And then um, they were murdered, unfortunately. Um, and then it all kicked off for about a three-hour firefight where, yeah, quite a few people lost their lives. But no one feels good about war, by the way. That, that's the upshot of it. It's, it's not good. Is, is that when you left the army? I did another two years afterwards, but my battalion was moving away from being just normal airborne infantry to then becoming part of a special forces support group, basically attached to the SAS. And because of what had happened, and I could see this going one way, I was doing a tour of Northern Ireland and my then girlfriend, my now wife, told me that we were expecting our first child. And that was the moment I went, right, that's it, I'm done, I'm gone. I can't be in the military and have a daughter grow up without a dad should something happen to me. 17 of my friends have lost their lives since 2003 across Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's like, I don't know, a fair play to the guys in the military that still are in the military with kids and going on tour as well. I, I couldn't do it. How did you reconcile 
one would say the selfish nature of giving up on the army and your comrades versus your family. Because, I mean, I've got a lot of friends who are ex-military and the camaraderie and the brotherhood is mm. off the scale. How yeah. did you square that in your head? The camaraderie is still off the scale now. And so some of the guys ended up staying becoming warrant officers, sergeant majors, RSMs, etc. A lot of the guys have ended up leaving, but it actually, do you know what? It doesn't matter whether you speak to one guy last week or you spoke to him 10 years ago. It's, you know, one of the guys called me from Turkey last week. All right, mate, how are you doing? And it was like, we'd never even left. Okay. But answering the question, how do you square the fact is, is that you're let, by leaving, you're letting your brothers down? It doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like you let them down, purely on the basis that everyone knows what everybody's gone through. So it's a case of everyone's got their own reasons for staying in and everyone's got their own reasons for coming out. Did you have any, some form of PTSD? Oh, I did. Oh, I went, I, so I had to go to Woolwich Arsenal Mental Hospital um, to actually square me away. When we got back from Iraq, I couldn't reconcile what had happened. I become very paranoid. When we actually, we got back from Iraq, get this, we literally spent two days in Dover, where our battalion was based, um, made sure our kit was cleaned, weapons cleaned, all handed back. And then I was on a train at Dover going back to Waterloo. No rifle, no kit, no nothing. And I'd spent six months in Iraq and it was the weirdest experience I've ever experienced because people were just looking at me like you're looking at me now. But in, you're looking at me thinking, Christ, your tanned, because I was, and I'm looking at you thinking, what are you looking at? Why are you looking at me? Do you want to do something to me? Have you got a weapon on you? And then it was like, normal way of thinking was just not normal anymore. So I was working is, out. Is that similar to, were your colleagues like that? Or just something, had a fuse popped in your head? Um, so colleagues that initially fired rounds in anger felt like that they had released an aggression, felt like they had released something on tour. I didn't fire a round in anger because I chose, there was moments you could have done, but I chose not to. And I'm grateful for that. Um, but I then... Weren't you letting your team down by... Not firing. No, because we, uh, for example, give you an example, one of the guys in the contact, in a contact, he jumped up over a trench and just fired some rounds randomly. Our force crew said to him, if you do that again, I'm going to shoot you myself. And effectively what he was saying is you're not allowed, or you shouldn't be firing randomly and indiscriminately um, just to try and keep somebody's head down. You need to make sure the shots are accurate. So if I'm like that, and by the way, it was a young man, and just beyond the young man um, was another man with a baby in his arms. So I was well within my rights to drop the person, but I didn't because if I miss and I hit the dad with the kid behind, then I'm going to be a, feel eternally guilty for that. So, so there are moments. There are moments where some real bad stuff happened in the sense of where people were dropped, but they had to be dropped to your point because their comrades being shot at, from 20 meters and this guy's going ah i don't want to double tap this person but i'm being forced to and they did and so those you know guys human beings are having to reconcile um yeah so it's um it sounds like if you shoot it releases it but then you feel guilty and if you don't you still feel guilty yeah, yeah. so damned if you do and damned if you don't correct the only difference is is that the guys that did release uh, a feeling of aggression have ended up suffering 10, 15 years later. I did my suffering very quickly afterwards to the point where I was working out how I can kill my mates 
because I thought they were laughing at me. And that, I don't care anybody laughing at me, by the way, but, that, but then in that moment... You were paranoid. I was proper paranoid, yeah. And so um, eventually plucked up the courage to speak to the Padre. That was the only person I could talk to and say, look, I don't want to leave the army. I do not want to leave the army. I love it. And I did. It was fantastic. And it's still brilliant. But I need my head to be sorted out. I don't like the way I feel. I was questioning everything, Chris. Shows it had good self-awareness to be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But more more out of maybe not. I'm, I didn't see it as self-reflection. I saw it as I need help. What did your wife, what was your wife or your fiance saying at this time? Or did uh, she just had this guy that came back from Iraq that was a bit so hired? Yeah, well, no, interesting because she was my childhood sweetheart from, say, the age of 12, 13 at school. And then when we got to, say, 16, we lost contact for 10 years. So the first time I heard of her again was when we was in the uh, Ramallah Royal Fields and I get this letter from her and her sister. Um, and I'm like, wow. And she's fit. So it was like, um, so the first time she actually met me in the flesh was a week after we got back from Iraq in a house welcome home party. Um, so then she then saw the transition from me uh, only from the day that she knew me as an adult. So, but, but massively supportive in the sense that, look, get self-help, you know. Do you think in hindsight, if she'd been with you forever, it might've been a, a different story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So she almost came across you as, I say it's nicely, damaged goods. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because she was happy to put you back together again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I, I wouldn't, um, the torment that, that people will go through on both sides, but the torment that people go through mentally is, is really bad. And support system, if, they, if somebody's got a support system, like I had, luckily, then, you know, that's, okay. that's good. So why did you end up leaving the, the, the army? You've kind of indicated it a few minutes ago, but just... just yeah, because I, I just didn't want to... I didn't want my daughter um, to grow up without a dad. I just thought that that okay. was hugely irresponsible. So you decided to go from basically what, the second most dangerous profession in the world to the first, which is a state agency. <laughs> Absolutely. Why a state agency? Uh, there was... Do you remember the... Uh, there was company called Green Code, do you remember them? Mm, in North, North London. Right. Bought out by Countrywide, if memory serves it well. Yeah, right. So there was a show, a, a fly on the wall documentary about Green Co. No, oh, yes. Yeah. So I was sitting there watching the actual show itself. Um, and they were, they were following one guy around and he was saying, yeah, during basic training, I was lifting 180 pounds on my back. And, and I was like, what? No way, I'm, I'm training to be in an elite regiment and we never lifted 180 pounds on our back during basic training. We did some hideous stuff, but not that level. When I crossed the border into Iraq, I had 183 pounds on my back and I couldn't stand up. And there was a show, uh, um, Zero Bravo, what was it, Bravo Two Zero? Yeah, uh, uh, and Sean Bean. And there was a scene where we had like three SAS soldiers lifting up one SAS soldier as they, before they're going on. And I was like, no way, mate, no way. And that was when I was still in civilian life. I was that person carrying that weight and tr effectively trying to carry it. A little pebble, if my foot hit it, I'm falling over. And then guys are having to pick each other up. We got everything. The Mortarman with the base papers, and they were carrying over 200 pounds. So I was like, so, but I was like, there's no way, no way that fella could ever do my job, but I could 100% do his. That though, Chris, when I did get... So basically, you saw a bloke, so giving it some BS, and you said, 
So if he was a fishmonger, I'm taking the mickey here. Yeah. If he was a fishmonger, you'd probably end up being a fishmonger. Uh, you're basically, you're, you're like a challenge, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So, but, uh, and I, I thought at the time, I thought, do you know what? I could be good at sales. I could be good at sales. I reckon I could be good at sales. Um, and if, if that's my competition, then I'm going to absolutely kill my competition. That is the, that's how I saw it. So you went to work for Winkworths, yep. going through the ranks of sales neg, sales manager, that sort of thing. But then you left the state agency and went to become podcasting marketing at Ginger Camel. Yeah, in Doha, in Qatar. What was that? You just get bored? Um, no, two things. One, my wife grew up in Qatar up until when I met her at the age of 12. So Qatar was home for her. So we knew people out there and it was a case of actually do you fancy a challenge and it was yeah actually i do that would be quite nice actually the re the thing is chris if i go if i go back slightly going from uh, the parachute regiment to a state agency there was me thinking i could do his job i was the world's worst estate agent when i first started i got more complaints than offers and it was like somebody complaints about what not showing a buyer the right type of property not giving feedback to sellers. But all that happened is literally, typically, right, there's your applicant box, there's your phone, start selling, right? People would ask to go and see a property and I'd say, yeah, brilliant, okay, fantastic, when can you make it? And I'll go and show them 10 o'clock Saturday morning. No offer, no feedback, just complaints to my manager to say I was showing them the wrong property. But in my world, in the world of military, you ask me for something, I give you something. If I don't know something, there's a pamphlet. And on that pamphlet, there's a process. There's a system, there's a formula, a paint by numbers, and I can follow that. But no one was telling me what questions I should be asking. So you weren't given training? Uh, ba very basic training. Very basic, just basically, whether somebody thought that they could think, well, this is a guy, he's an ex-para, he maybe, he surely he can just get on the phone, and just start smashing out loads of gusto. But I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't. And so it ended up, I would avoid the phone to let somebody else quickly pick it up because otherwise I just found myself standing on a street corner, a set of details in my hand and feeling like a prostitute. But no one was leaving with a happy ending. And it was just nasty and horrible. And I was like, what have I done? What actually have I got myself into? So that's when you went out to Doha? Um, no, when I had actually, interestingly, within a couple of years, funnily enough, um, because I've still got the attitude of like, no, I'm not having this. I'm going to work it all out. Um, I actually did start doing really well to the point I became a sales manager um, of another Winkworth office. What clicked? What clicked? Um, my colleague gave me three questions, reluctantly gave me three questions to ask, tell, explain, describe. And then I built a massive um, thing around those three questions and then added to them, took stuff away. But also, I didn't like the injustice. And the state agency for me, which, which is the main thing for me, is injustice within the state agency, where people are saying stuff that's not necessarily true. I couldn't stand that. So I felt like I needed to be a protector within this industry. You're a very black and white person, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Right and wrong. Absolutely. Bullets don't lie. You spent three years out in Doha, but then you came back. Yeah. Why? Cost of living out there literally was, was the reason for coming back. Um, yeah. I what mean, line of business is your wife in? Uh, so she is an ops director for a company that um, design uh, cars for Volkswagen, BMW. Um, okay. that sort of what stuff. was she doing at the time then? That same job? No, no, no. Charlene, um, uh, she always wanted to be a stewardess. 
Okay. And I absolutely said, you need to be a stewardess. Um, then when we had uh, Annalie, um, she then sort of pulled back from being a stewardess. Um, and then she, at the time, didn't really have to work when we was in uh, Doha. Um, so could have done, but we also... I don't know, how does that square? You're complaining about the cost of living, but she wasn't working. Although she was a you're obviously a mother. Yeah. You know, your child so, was three, five, six years old at that time. Yeah, so, so Emily would have been, I think, six or seven then. So in terms of um, trying to be a mum at home, she could have worked, but working out in Doha wouldn't really have suited. We didn't really have, apart from friends, there was no support network around family. My family all live in New Zealand. Charlene's family are all back in uh, Marlow as well. So it got to the point, we also had our second child and then uh, at the end, we had our third. Um, and so it got to the point where it's like, right, schooling and everything else is so expensive that it's even if she was working we would have still just been working out there purely to live not actually working out there and enjoying ourselves so it's like actually let's come back so that's exactly what we did so charlene before doing this job she had the best job in the world which was working for a company called gto engineering who manufacture and recreate um ferraris what does charlene bring to you obviously apart from being the mother of your children massive levels of stability yeah so a lots lots of grounding she's very much the person who going are you sure should we have a conversation about this and then just sort of work it out so in terms of like team in and around family in and around initiatives um like i am with her you want to try something go and do it she's exactly the same with me are you more like your father than your mother more like my dad uh, wrong sorry more more like my dad is with when i'm with interacting with my boys um and my daughter but more like my mum when it comes to the fluffy stuff as well the cuddles the hugs the making sure they're okay etc so nice mixture of both actually you got back to the uk and you went to work for winkworths mm -hmm. which is same winkworth same yeah. franchise yeah so I told the guys I was coming back and they said, do you want an old sales manager job back? Okay. Yeah. But then they sold out, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go uh, okay? Did it go okay? No. Um, the, the, the two guys that I'm working for, and we, we, we can elaborate more on this, but they were very much of the opinion, John, as a sales manager, this was, they told me this lesson beforehand anyway, which gave me confidence to be the manager I ended up becoming. Um, but very much always go for the second sale, never go for them. So it was never the pressure or a KPI to say, you need to hit these targets as a sales manager, which was beautiful. What do you mean hit the second target? What do you mean by that? So as opposed to me trying to be in the convincing business and trying to convince you, Chris, to come with me and I'm the best agent, they were took the view, you need to be interviewing the seller just as much as the seller thinks they're interviewing you. Because if the seller isn't right, all that's going to happen is it's going to make you ill. And that was, that was the way. That, so if you can get the first instruction, brilliant. But then you're not being held to that um, as well. So a couple of things. Get it, be the first choice, second agent. Yeah. Be, or, you know, get it next time. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah, exactly. So the door, that's is, quite, the door that's is always open. That's quite good. That's quite a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. But then they sold out. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so the, 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 the new guy that actually came in, again, definitely go for a beer, have a laugh, have a joke. But actually, he overheard me having a conversation with a, with a, uh, a client. And I had previously achieved 5.30 for this flat for this client. Um, she was being 
whispered sweet nothings from the other agents around the corner to say when they can get the 585. And in the end, I was like, right, listen, I'm going to end my contract right now. If you believe that they can get you the 585 and I'm saying to you, you can't. And if we're not careful, you're going to end up getting 500 grand. I'm going to say to you, let's break this contract right now. Please go and speak to the guys around it. If it doesn't work, then please come back to me. Um, she ended up selling and she ended up selling for 500 grand. But he heard that conversation. With them? 500 with them? Yeah. Um, uh, so that you could argue, well, hang on a moment, they got the commission and we didn't. But equally at the same time, I'm, what I'm not going to do is ruin my reputation and the reputation I had built on the basis of a short-term gain because that's long-term pain. There's no point doing that. Up to that moment, we had 63 valuations that I went on. There were 44 that came to market. I sold 41 of them. So it's almost a one-in-one -one hit rate and actually saying the right, the, the right money to, to make sure that my seller is in full control of the sale of their home. Mm -hmm. So any conversation like, oh, but the other agent said, I'm like, if, right, if, if we're going to go down that road and I can't convince you otherwise, then fine, crack on. So this, this new boss basically overheard the conversation and said what? Uh, I want you to overvalue everything by 10, 15% to make sure we get the instruction. How did that make you feel? Within half an hour, I'd spoken to my wife and my resignation letter was sitting on his desk. You try and persuade you otherwise? No. Is that franchisee still there? Yes. Yeah. And that's... Um, we won't mention that name. No. But it's, it's that, that for me, it's just... I don't like injustice. And for me to agree to... It's a, coming back to his black and white thing you yeah. were talking about. Yeah. You went to work for Aston's. Mm-hmm. For a year or two years? Yeah. But then you left a state agency. Yeah. You don't spend that long with things, do you? Um, I do in the sense of one thing I can't stand is BS. And so with Aston's, so Anthony Aston's, phenomenal guy, really phenomenal guy, prime central London in around Queensway, Hyde Park, etc., Battersea. Um, uh, the, he had actually moved from a franchise and created his own business. Um, and what subsequently happened is everybody thought, well, where's the franchise gone that we all know that's really well known? And who's this new business? He had a huge lettings portfolio, huge lettings portfolio, but the prime central London market at that time wasn't going anywhere. So it's a case of what's the point in traveling all the way from Marlow into London if we, if we are, no matter how hard we're pushing, we're not, nothing's happening. And so the team was whittling down in the end. It was like, right, Anthony, mate, I'm going to disappear and go back to Marlow. Went to work for a guy, Marlow. But the same thing happened again, not with Anthony, but with the new guy, which is, but John, surely if the house is worth 500 grand, you'll say 550 to get it. Uh, no, I won't. What I will do is I'll get it on for 500 grand and I'll sell it for 515. That's what I'll do uh, because I know how to do that. So you moved back out to Marlow. But that didn't work out, so mm. that's when you went into logistics with back to the military. No, I created a logistics company called Military Logistics. Okay. Um, and that was just the same day courier because I needed to get out of, I didn't, I couldn't afford to go and have my own high street agency. Um, so the job of this logistics firm was to build up a lump of money yeah. to start your own estate agency. Yeah, exactly. And so I ran that for about two and a half years. Um, but then you went into recruitment. Yeah. So just before, just before uh, lockdown. 
um, again, it was a case of, do I get into a state agency working, singing somebody else's tune? But my, I've, I've been called the most quirkiest estate agent that um, someone has ever met. Um, and I was like, quirky, what do you mean? Because if, if telling the truth is quirky, then that's mental. Um, uh, but I understood. Because it, when I first become the manager, again, um, I wasn't winning all the instructions. Okay. But why recruitment? Uh, because, again, I enjoy helping people. And again, was, why, but, not, but why not another estate agency in 20? Because I couldn't trust estate agents. You set your own up. You could join the EXP. No, exactly right. But again, with the EXP, with the, with the Keller Williams, with, the, with the, you know, those sort of businesses, it would be a case of, I don't want to have anyone's, because I've, I don't want the hand on my head to say, you can't do this, you can't say that, you can't say this. For example, in Labber Grove, I was saying, when with that phrase, people buy from people. Mm -hmm. They trust. Yeah. People right. buy from people. people. They trust. Right. So I, so I was saying to the guys, could we not, um, this was, the, this was the, um, the franchisees, the ones that were saying, go for the second sale, not the first. And I was saying, could we advertise people's businesses in Labbert Grove for free? Well, how are you going to do that, John? Well, I reckon we should create a podcast where we interview business owners in Labbert Grove about their business, what they do, why they do it, what they stand for, all of those well, I can things. I remember you doing this. Yeah, right? I love the Grove. Yeah. And it, um, it wasn't... Um, my franchisees were happy for me to do that, but the wider business was like, oh, we're sort of raising our head above the parapet. And we, we know it's you, John, but we're scared of having maybe our name attached to that just in case you say something that's not necessary because I didn't pull no punches when I'm having conversations with people. They felt that I may say something that ends up landing the business. Because you were, an, you were an employee of a franchisee and the franchisor was saying... Yeah. And there's guidelines and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But this is what I did, Chris. When I was told that I couldn't really do it, I went, oh, that's great. That's brilliant. And when I did it anyway, because I realised it was not, it's not, the state, someone selling their home is not about me. It's about them. To your point, it's people do business. Okay. Yeah, but hold on a second. Your bosses were telling you not to do something mm -hmm. and you broke their orders. Uh, yeah. But what that did, that was part of the reason why those 44 that came to market, we end up getting instructed on 41. That, lo that podcast was part of that reason. So I had the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, all saying when somebody's coming in, a hairdresser and going, oh my God, my agent. And they're like, have you spoken to John? Who's John? Oh mate, he's the, look what he's doing for us. Yeah, so it was, um, uh, again, so I needed to be trusted. I couldn't just be one of another hundred agents operating in Labbert Grove, all saying things that sound nice in order to try and win business. I was having to prove This that was actually. back in the late teens. We've yeah. gone slightly back. Yeah. Okay, so, but then you finish your recruitment. Is mm. that because it wasn't going well or something? And you went back no, into the agency? No, because it, it's, it's basically now it's like, do you know what? I need to stop talking a good game and I need to live up to, if I'm going to be telling everybody else that they should be pushing and driving in a certain way, then I now need to do that myself. So when did you start Savage and Savage Estate Agency? So that was uh, this year, June. Okay. Yeah, so literally it's just fledgling um, in terms of, again, competing with the the established agents so on what are you doing well i mean i know you're running a, a zero bs estate agency podcast who's mm -hmm. that for that is uh for agents uh primarily 
why because i want agents because there's loads of agents out there chris that are working for a business where they are phenomenal but they are questioning maybe the practices or the business model of the business that they're working for and they're looking for guidance to be taught to know okay and that's great with the podcast but are you actually what are you are you actually implementing what you've done with labrick growth everywhere else in marlow with savage and savage then yeah so i've got a podcast which isn't released yet but it's called everything marlow okay and so again it's the same formula interviewing all the local businesses um uh again even with and this may be something another agent may try we've got marlow fm last week i've emailed them they'll follow up with a call this week would you like to do an hour-long uh, property um, uh, radio show for Marlowe residents? So we'll see what, what, what they say. I've got the TikTok channel, which started in 2020, um, which again is, um, I think I've been, I was told recently that's had like 13 million views in the last two and a half years, which is great considering I've spent no money on it. And that all that is doing is giving um, agents, buyers, sellers, the information they need to make uh, the right choices. What's going to stop you giving all this up in two years' time and doing something else? Nothing. Because I've always been on the periphery. Like, so, for example, I wished, I wished that, um, that I had me and when I was a, a negotiator, that, that I was working with someone that was like, John, whatever's right is right, mate. And how we get that message out there. Because, look, we're, I'm not going to do business with everybody. There are going to be people that are going to really, really like what I say and how black and white I am. And then okay. there's going to be other people that just do not like okay, but what I say. You'd have probably said that. If, I, if I'd have asked you back in 16 or 17, you'd have probably said the same, wouldn't you? Um, mm, I was questioning whether a state agency was right for me. You're completely correct. Okay. Because it was an industry that was like, wow, what is going on? Why? Why? Were you an angry middle-aged man trying to sort the problems out? And now you've realised that the only way you're going to sort it out is one vendor at a time. Yes, one is, yeah, it's, it's, 2007, I was saying to my colleague, John, how do we get into everybody's heads? How can we get into everybody's heads and show them or at least give them a choice? So as opposed to three agents turning up for evaluation, actually, a, a seller can distinguish between these three agents and who actually the one is saying things that sound nice and who's the one that can actually deliver. And at the moment, sellers don't know. And so can I teach agents to also do that, that want to be better um, uh, than just a So why, why are you not one of these, another one of these bloody gurus that's trying to teach everyone everything? Do you know, I, I don't want to speak harshly of a guru because I've not done any gurus courses. So I can't say whether their, their stuff is good or whether it's bad. So that would be wrong of me to do that. But in terms of if ever someone watched my TikTok, you see me answer someone's question, from one okay. to one, one to many. Okay, that's, that's great on TikTok with 30 million people watching it, but you need Marlowe homeowners. Yeah, exactly. So part, part of that is a major, a major thing, of course, is authority. So what I don't have is authority on the high street. So I need to get my authority from somewhere else. Yeah, but there's no point in getting the authority in Kuala Lumpur or Alaska. It's Marlowe homeowners that you need to build authority with. No, that's correct. But if I'm, for example, if I've got 56,000 people following me, which is a small number, but 56,000 people following me on TikTok. And when people see that, for example, when people see the book Highest Net Profit Formula, straight away, they're like, wow, this person must know what they're talking about. Not every day does an agent write a book about exactly how to actually maximize the value of your home. And here's the nine steps to do that. 
So it's so when strange title, highest net profit formula. Yeah, it actually. Why should... have you got homeowner in the title? Um, because that agency. one is for Marlow residents. So why haven't you got the word Marlow in it? Um, in the title. Yeah, it's a fair point. How to sell your Marlow home for the best price? It could could probably should be that. But yeah, there you go, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Every day is school. I don't know. I'm just. No, I'm, no, no. You are right. It, look, you, it, you said to me at the start of the interview, everything yeah. was off. Everything I could talk about. Everything. Yeah, yeah. I want to, you know, is that a maths book? Yeah, no, actually, that's a fair point. That's a fair comment. Um, I suppose the highest net profit formula comes from the actual nine steps. The nine steps. You follow these nine steps, that will give you the okay. highest net profit formula. Okay. Or the highest net profit. Maybe, maybe, maybe a consideration. Yeah. So where would I see, if you come back here in 10 years' time, what am I going to see? Uh, you are going to see, as it stands right now, my intention, my intention, but this is not for glamour. My intention in my mind is to be the most well-known UK estate agent. Okay. Right. Now, what that means is that doesn't mean to say that I'm going to have like offices and franchises here, there and everywhere. Marlow and the surrounding towns is my area, but I want to get it to a point where agents that think like I think, and there are a really good handful of them, right? In terms of do what's right, even if it hurts they are out there and it will allow them to actually win business. I may not win directly win it for them, but at least then they can differentiate themselves by following what I'm saying to follow. And also um, it just means that I'm highlighting what good practice looks like. So a seller um, can actually make an informed decision about what good looks like and what bad looks like as well, because I believe in choice. And the only way that somebody can have a choice is if they know the good, the bad, the ugly. Well, I look forward to inviting you back in 10 years' time to see if you hit that, uh, that, that wish. Thank you for your time today, John. Thanks, Chris.